0: Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Eaton Khalil Patz was born on October 9, 1972, in Manhattan, New York, to Stan and Julie. On the morning of May 25, 1979, six-year-old Eaton left his Manhattan, Soho apartment alone, heading to school. This was the first time he had ever walked alone to the school bus stop, and sadly, it would be his last. Eaton never made it onto the bus and was never seen alive again. After being reported missing, it launched one of the most intense missing person searches the city had ever seen. President Ronald Reagan would even get involved by declaring May 25th as National Missing Children's Day in 1983. Eaton was also one of the first children to appear on a milk carton. In 1985, Jose Antonio Ramos became a primary suspect in the case. He was a convicted child abuser who was friends with Eaton's former babysitter. In 1982, multiple boys accused him of trying to lure them into a drain pipe. When they searched the drain pipe, they found photographs of young boys who resembled Eaton. Ramos said that on the day Eaton disappeared, he took a boy who resembled Eaton back to his apartment. However, investigators could never find the evidence to convict Ramos. Every year, on the anniversary of Eaton's disappearance and on his birthday, Eaton's father, Stan, would send Ramos a missing poster of Eaton with the words, What did you do with my little boy? typed on the back. Eaton's parents sued Ramos in 2004 and won a staggering $2 million. Unfortunately, Eaton was never found, and the case would then remain unsolved for the next 33 years. On June 19, 2001, Eaton was declared legally dead. In 2012, it would finally be revealed that Ramos was not, in fact, involved in Eaton's disappearance and presumed murder, which is crazy considering his parents won the civil lawsuit against him. In a crazy turn of events, a New Jersey man by the name of Jose Lopez reached out to investigators and told a secret that he and his family had been keeping since the early 1980s. He said that his brother-in-law, Pedro Hernandez, who was now 51 years old, had openly confessed to his church that he kidnapped and strangled Eaton to death. Everyone in his family, including the parishioners at the church, held on to the secret for all these years. After Hernandez was arrested, he confessed to the crime. At the time of Eaton's disappearance, Hernandez was an 18-year-old dropout who was working at a neighborhood convenience store at West Broadway and Prince Street, which was near Eaton's bus stop. Eaton had left that day with a dollar and entered the store to buy a soda to drink with his lunch. That's when Hernandez lured Eaton into the basement of the store and strangled him to death. He then threw his body in the garbage. After the murder, Hernandez quit moved back to New Jersey, and got a job in a dress factory. On February 14, 2017, Hernandez was found guilty of the kidnapping and murder of poor little Eaton and was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. As for a motive, according to the defense, Hernandez struggled with mental problems that made him imagine attacking Eaton before he actually did it. However, prosecutors believe that sexual assault was the primary motive, but without Eaton's body, we may never know for sure. Catherine Knight was born on October 24, 1955, in Tenerfield, Australia, to Barbara Rowan and Ken Knight. Her father, Ken, was a violent alcoholic who would sexually assault her mother multiple times a day. Eventually, Catherine was even sexually assaulted by several family members. This led to her being a bully in school to smaller children. She never learned to read or write and eventually dropped out of school to work a clothing factory job. A year into that job, she was hired as a butcher at a local slaughterhouse. Catherine fell in love with this job and even hung her first set of butcher's knives over her bed. It was also at this job that she met her first husband, David Kellett, a violent alcoholic who was prone to getting into fist fights. Catherine was no stranger to this type of violence and even joined in on one of those drunken fistfights. Catherine was known for her bad temper and her mother even tried to warn David about marrying her. However, he didn't listen and on their wedding night, she began strangling David after he refused to have sex with her for a fourth time. Somehow, even after that, the marriage still lasted 10 years, and the couple had two daughters together. David began having multiple affairs, and when Catherine found out about one of them, she placed their two-month-old daughter on a nearby train track and walked away. Thankfully, a local man saw the incident and rescued the newborn. She was then caught violently pushing and swinging her second child in a stroller down a busy street and was placed in a psychiatric hospital for a few months. During her time there, she confessed to wanting to kill the mechanic who fixed David's car, which allowed him to leave. Eventually, the couple broke up for good in 1986. She then met a local miner by the name of David Saunders. They moved in together and just like David Collette, their relationship quickly soured due to Catherine's jealous tendencies. She even took the life of Saunders' dingo puppy to show him what she was capable of. Catherine would then have her third child with Saunders. He eventually left her after she tried to kill him with a pair of scissors. She then met John Chillingworth and had her fourth child with him. This seems like her only normal relationship, well, at least according to John, who claims he never feared for his life. He did admit that she had a very wicked temper, though. They only separated after she began having an affair. That brings us to John Price, the man she was having an affair with. John went by the nickname Pricey and had two older kids who still lived with him. His children and Catherine seemed to get along, and in 1995, the couple moved in together. As the relationship progressed, Catherine mentioned to Pricey that they should get married, but he refused. That's when her old ways reared their ugly head. As revenge for his rejection, she decided to frame him for stealing things from his place of employment, which led to him being fired. This caused them to split up, but not for long, and a few months later, they reconciled. On February 29, 2000, Pricey took out a restraining order against Catherine after she tried to stab him in the chest. After getting the restraining order, he went to work, and it was there he said something to his co-workers they'll never forget. He said if he didn't come in the next day, he was probably murdered by Catherine. If he'd only known how right he was, he might have gone elsewhere, far from home. That night, as Pricey was asleep in his bed, Catherine came into their bedroom with a butcher knife and began stabbing him. I should note that before this, she had come into the bedroom and woke him up so they could have sex together. After the stabbing began, Pricey took off down the hall, heading for the front door. However, she caught up to him and dragged him back inside. At that point, the blood loss was too much and Pricey died right there on the floor, I can't go into too much detail about this next part, but I will try my best to sum up what she did. She basically pulled a page out of Jeffrey Dahmer's book and made dinner from his remains. Multiple dishes were made from multiple parts. If you've ever heard of Ed Ginn, she was also in the process of doing that with his skin. After preparing dinner and setting the table for her kids, Catherine attempted to take her own life using prescription medication. When authorities arrived, they found her still asleep on the couch. The crime scene was so horrific that some of the first officers on the scene quit the force a few days later. There were also three videotapes made of the scene by the forensic team, but they are sealed and will never be released to the public. After Catherine's arrest, she claimed that she couldn't remember what happened, and all these years later, she has stuck to that story. She was eventually found guilty of murder and was the first woman in Australia to be sentenced to life in prison. In 2006, she tried to appeal the sentence but was denied. Melanie Yereba was born on September 9, 1948, in California. At the age of 33, Melanie was a divorced single mother to an eight-year-old son who was working as a nurse at Pacoma Hospital in Burbank, California. On December 15, 1980, Melanie was on her way to the hospital for her night shift when tragedy struck. As she stopped at a stoplight, a witness saw two men force their way into her truck and abduct her. After that, she was never seen alive again. Melanie was known for being reliable and would also show up to work on time. So when she failed to show up that night, her employer tried calling her home, but received no answer, which struck them as odd. By Tuesday afternoon, when there was still no word from Melanie, her roommate reported her missing. Authorities quickly matched the abduction report to the missing person report, and an intensive search began. Two days later, on December 17th, as the search continued for Melanie, A radio broadcast went out about her disappearance and caught the attention of a Lockheed Aerospace Plant employee by the name of Etta Louise Smith. All of a sudden, she had a vision, which she claims was just like a movie, that showed a canyon and a curving road, shrubbery, hills in the backdrop, and a dirt path leading to something white. Etta had never considered herself to be psychic and was taken aback by what had just occurred. She believed that the white she saw was Melanie's uniform and that the vision was pointing her to the location of her body. She was very hesitant to share what happened, but decided to leave work early and head to the police station. It was there that she spoke to Detective Lee Ryan. Detective Ryan was skeptical, but in front of him was a top security clearance Lockheed employee. It was hard not to take her a little seriously, so he took down the information that she provided. After leaving the police station, Etta feared that they wouldn't take her seriously, so she decided to check the location herself. She gathered a few family members and drove to the top of the canyon. She claimed that while driving around looking for Melanie, she could sense her presence. As she was driving down the canyon once more, she noticed some fresh tire tracks. As they continued on, Etta's daughter noticed something in a bush. Etta got out and began walking toward it and saw Melanie's body with her white nursing shoes still on. She had been sexually assaulted and beaten to death. Suspicions quickly fell on Etta, who was quickly arrested. After hours of interrogations, she agreed to a polygraph and passed. The detective then lied and claimed she failed the test. He even went as far as to say she was attempting to control her breathing during the exam and was being deceptive. The next morning, she was officially charged with the murder of Melanie Uribe. Investigators then had an undercover woman placed in Etta's cell with her, hoping to gain information or a possible confession. However, her time in jail was short because an informant came forward and told police about a man he heard bragging about the murder. Police quickly arrested the man, and he confessed to the murder and implicated two others. On December 23rd, with the real murderers behind bars, Etta was released. The real murderers were 20-year-old Louis Carnell Morgan, 21-year-old Spencer Nelson, and an unnamed 17-year-old. They had jumped into Melanie's truck at the stoplight, drove her truck near Foothill Boulevard and Arroyo Street, and set it on fire. They then drove Melanie 15 miles north to the canyon, where they sexually assaulted and beat her to death before robbing her. They were all three ultimately convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Etta decided to sue the police department for her arrest, alleging they didn't have reasonable grounds to arrest her. During the lawsuit trial, the undercover policewoman claimed that Etta told her that she was going to be making a movie about her experience, which was the city's defense against her. Let's be honest, though, I'd probably be thinking the same thing, as crazy as this story is. In the end, the jury sided with Etta, and she won the lawsuit. She was seeking $750,000 in the lawsuit, but only received a total of $26,000. On top of that, the assistant city attorney, Michael Fox, issued an apology to Etta for the arrest. What do y'all think? Did Etta really have a psychic vision, or did she hear about the general location through word of mouth? Did she do all this for financial gain, or was she trying to be helpful? I will note that police could never find a connection between her and Melanie's killers. Please let me know your thoughts in the comments below. Roy Joe McCaleb was born on September 3, 1934, in Baytown, Texas. By the age of 51, Roy was a veteran of the Korean War and was a master mason of the Goose Creek Masonic Lodge. He had also suffered the loss of his daughter, Bridget, who died from a neurological disease in 1981 and was recently divorced from his wife, Celine after 22 years of marriage. Sadly, his son Alton would be diagnosed with the same neurological disease as Bridget and would eventually lose the ability to walk. Sadly, Alton succumbed to the disease in 1988. In 1983, Roy met 41-year-old Carolyn Krizan Wilson, and the two quickly fell in love and married. It seemed the couple had a similar interest in playing cards and enjoying music together. However, it soon became clear that Carolyn was not accepting of Alton. So, before the wedding, he moved out of his father's home. Two years into the marriage, in the early morning hours of September 23, 1985, Roy was sound asleep when he was shot to death. When police arrived, Carolyn told them that a barefoot, homeless man had broken into their home, sexually assaulted her at knife point, and poured hot wax on her body. She said that after the sexual assault, the man entered the bedroom, grabbed her gun from underneath her pillow, and shot Roy multiple times. She then claimed that while he was running out of the room, he bumped into her, causing him to drop the gun. She says she picked it up and fired two shots at him. It's a good thing she confessed to that part because her fingerprints were found on the gun and gun residue was found on her hands. In a shocking twist, she claimed that the same man had carjacked and sexually assaulted her a week earlier and she believed he tracked her down to do it again. However, she strangely never told Roy about the incident. Roy was a construction foreman who had recently had back surgery, and Carolyn claimed she didn't want to upset him and slow his recovery by telling him about the assault. While some investigators initially believed her, others were skeptical, as they should be. However, those skeptical didn't have any evidence to prove she was lying. With no viable suspects besides possibly Carolyn, the case would go unsolved for the next 28 years. Roy was Carolyn's seventh husband, and it was later revealed that she wasn't even officially divorced when they married. Her sixth husband, Melvin Laxon, later came out and described Carolyn as a living hell who only cared about money. He said he enjoyed being around her sons so much that he stayed with her for a while. However, the more time he spent with her children, the more jealous she got. He was a truck driver, and while out on the road, she took the boys and left, stealing his $4,000 tax return check in the process. He also said she was never happy with the amount of money he made. By 2008, Carolyn was working as a civilian employee at the Houston Police Department and had recently been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Also, her sons were now grown and were both police officers. That same year, the case was reopened and she was questioned again, and they noticed that her description of the suspect had changed. All those years ago, she described the man as white, but now she claimed he was black. When they pointed out the discrepancy, she said she changed the race of the man out of shame. At this point, investigators were certain that Carolyn had murdered Roy. Plus, they had evidence that she took out two life insurance policies on Roy, totaling $198,000. She was then charged with his murder, but the judge threw the case out due to her Alzheimer's diagnosis. As for the insurance policy, she would never receive the full payout because Roy's children, who believed she was responsible for their father's murder, contested the insurance claim. The prosecutor also informed the insurance company that she was a suspect in the case. After a -a two-and-a-half-year court battle, Roy's children got $21,000, and Carolyn received $19,000 from the insurance company. Thankfully, Roy's family never stopped pursuing justice. And finally, in 2012, the Court of Appeals reopened the case and had her re-interrogated. This time, she finally admitted to lying and committing the murder. Investigators finally had the truth that they suspected all this time that there never was a barefoot homeless man and she was never sexually assaulted. It was now time for serious justice, but in a crazy turn of events, she was offered a plea deal for six months in jail and ten years probation, which she accepted. While Roy's family was happy to have some long-awaited closure, they were saddened by her short sentence. Teresa Lee Scalf was born on June 13, 1957, and was described as a very loving, wonderful person. At the age of 29, Teresa lived with her 8-year-old son in Polk County, Florida, and had just obtained her registered nurse license. After that, she was hired on at Lakeland Regional Health Medical Center. Around this time, Teresa had mentioned to one of her sisters that a male neighbor had been making her uncomfortable but didn't provide any details on what he looked like. She said that he lived directly behind her and had once shown up at her house with a flower he had ripped out of the ground and put in a pot. On October 27, 1986, Teresa's son was away from the home when tragedy struck. Someone had come into her house, sexually assaulted her, and stabbed her to death. Investigators found unknown blood at the scene that most likely belonged to the killer. Unfortunately, investigators were unable to find any solid suspects. The killer's DNA was eventually analyzed and entered into CODIS, but no matches were found. The DNA would eventually help solve the case, but not for 37 years. In 2022, the Polk County Sheriff's Office teamed with Othram to determine if advanced DNA testing could help identify new leads in the case. After generating a profile, Othram's in-house forensic genetic genealogy team used the profile to track down a potential relative of the unknown suspect. Detectives then interviewed the relatives and were able to narrow their search to a now-deceased man. Can you guess where that man lived? Yep, directly behind Teresa. The man's son willingly provided his DNA, and from that, they were able to confirm the suspect's identity as Donald Douglas. Douglas would have been 33 years old at the time of the murder and died in 2008 from natural causes at the age of 54. After his death, he was cremated, which made the son's DNA that much more important. Turns out, Douglas was interviewed by detectives in 1986, but there was no evidence linking him to the murder at the time. Thankfully, Teresa's mother, Betty Scauff, now 84, was still alive to see her daughter's murder solved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.